Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Susana Munoz. Today we're talking about the new book, From Equity Talk to Equity Walk, Expanding Practitioner Knowledge for Racial Justice in Higher Education. I'm thrilled to be joined by two of the authors, Tia Brown McNair and Estela Mara Ben-Simon, who will also be discussing with me some of the important and timely elements of their book. Unfortunately, the third author, Lindsay Malcolm PQ, could not join us. We'll miss you. Um, and, and hopefully we can get Lindsay back on the show later in, in the season. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthology. Is your goal to engage in effective assessment, boost data fluency, and empower staff with strategic data collection, documented analysis, and use results for change? No matter where your campus is in the assessment journey, Anthology, formerly Campus Labs, can help you figure out what's next in, with a short assessment. You'll receive customized results and tailored recommendations to address your most immediate assessment needs. Learn more about how Anthology's products and expert consultation can empower your division with actionable data by visiting campuslabs.com slash essaynow. As I mentioned, I'm your host today, Susana Munoz. My pronouns are she, her, hers, ella. I'm an associate professor of higher education and program director at Colorado State University. I'm hosting this conversation today from Fort Collins, Colorado, which is the on the ancestral homelands of the Ute, Arapaho, and Cheyenne peoples and nations. Now let's get into our conversation. Today we're discussing the new book from Equity Talk to Equity Walk, which just came out this year and is published by the Association of America Colleges and Universities, the Center for Urban Education, and Josie Bass. Authors, please introduce yourselves and the relationship you have to this project. Let's start with Estela. Hello, Susana. Thank you so much for inviting us to join you today. And I am Estela Ben-Simon, and um, I am a professor at the University of Southern California at the Rossier School of Education and uh, the director of the Center for Urban Education. Thank you. Hi, and thank you, Susanna, for inviting us. As Estella said, looking forward to the conversation. I'm Tia McNair. I serve as the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Student Success and the Executive Director of the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Campus Centers at AACNU. And my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Looking Thank forward to it. Thank you. Happy that you're here with us. So Estela, you've dedicated the majority of your academic career to issues of equity and racial justice. And what I really appreciate about this book is that it speaks to the action behind equity, specifically about building and assessing equity-mindedness competencies um, could you say more about the importance of equity-mindedness and how institutions of higher, higher education can build this capacity within academic and student affairs? 
yes, thank you, Susanna. The reason why I think it's in, uh, important to focus on practice is a lot of times when we think about racial equity work, we try to change people's minds. And um, I think that people's minds are much more likely to change when they first change their practices. So I have in my work with my colleagues, Tia among them, uh, I have focused on, on creating tools that enable a faculty member in mathematics or uh, an advisor in student services or a vice president in student services to study their, their practices from a racial equity uh, stance using a protocol or a tool. And they realize suddenly, because people like to pride themselves as being you know, anti-racist, and they suddenly realize that their, their, their routine practices, um, whether it's a syllabus, whether it's a strategic plan, are essentially, um, you know, the they, racial equity is absent. It's their language is race neutral. They don't take into account that the students' experiences of a college campus are in fact, uh, they, they're in fact shaped by racial identity. So um, I find that that's a much more effective way than me telling uh, individuals or groups of individuals, your documents are race neutral. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say sort of, you know, you, everything is sort of centered on practices. And so, how, you know, where do these administrators, where does the practice come from? Like, what do you think that needs to maybe shift in terms of the practice? And, and particularly because I, you know, direct the, the higher ed program here in our graduate studies, you know, do we need to revamp our, how we train student affairs practitioners? Yes, absolutely. I, I think so. And I would say that where I would begin um, with, uh, with a program like yours would be uh, maybe to do a very structured and disciplined and rigorous examination of the, um, of the courses, the curriculum, the syllabi. And um, that would be the place where I would start and essentially to ask the questions, in what ways does this higher education graduate program train student affairs professionals to be race conscious or to be equity minded? And that would be um, a really good way of being able to identify maybe both strengths as well as gaps in the curriculum. Yeah. I mean, that's the way that I used to approach my course that I taught on the administration of higher education. I always yeah. say, I, I am training you to be equity-minded uh, leaders and administrators. Yeah, no, that's, that's super important. And that, so we cannot leave it up to chance. Right. And, you, you know, we can't leave it up to just, you know, the Stella Ben Simons or the Tia's or Susana's, it, it, all faculty, correct? You know, yeah, has to be across the board. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's about time. I agree. Tia, what are your thoughts? How do you? Uh, what are your thoughts about sort of equity and mindedness in in your world in terms of what you do 
um, and who your your around your sphere influences. You know, what are your thoughts about equity mindedness and how that gets practiced? So first of all, I'm always going to agree with Estella. There's, <laughs> there's, I'm never going to disagree with her. Are you kidding me? So everything that she said, and and for us, at, I think in the work that I lead, and I've been at AECNU over 10 years, is that we our focus has always been on equity and learning. And I think we have been looking at that what most, where most people start, and that's why we started the book this way, we're looking at equity and student outcomes and trying to figure out from graduation, retention, course completion, progression rates, those particular pieces. I think where we, when we did the project that was a catalyst for the book, and then also our work with many in other institutions, is that we realized that that focus, as Estella was saying, on being race conscious and institutionally focused and willing to examine, critically examine our behaviors from a race and, and how they exhibit, you know, racialized practices and policies. That piece was never the and. Mm -hmm. It was, the focus was on looking at equity and outcomes, but not going deeper into those conversations about, okay, why? And what are those practices that perpetuate those inequities and in student outcomes? And how are they being addressed from a race perspective or being examined critically by what we're doing that is actually fueling <laughs> and contributing mm. to those inequities? And if you look at any reports, especially ACE just released, and Laurel, when she was there, did a wonderful job on the race and ethnicity report, and I'm glad that they're continuing it. Our, just recently, they did a supplement to it and did an update to it. It's actually, I mean, even more eye-opening, and we should all be concerned as mm. we are looking and thinking about the impact of COVID-19 and, and impact on the reduction in funding and support and the, the resource um, diminishing that's happening at our institution. I mean, that, that institutions that's happening across the board, everything's going in the wrong direction to actually help us meet the equity outcomes. And particularly, we've got to be focused on this race the race perspective and a race-based approach to this, considering that so many of our students, what is it, 46% now of our undergraduate students are representing Black, Latinx, Indigenous, you know, Asian American people. I mean, we've got to think about this. So I think that um, for me, it's getting our campuses to really focus on the race, racial mm. equity. And, and, and intentionally, and we say this in the book that everyone gets to this point and then they stop because those conversations become more difficult. They are not as um, open to those types of conversations mm -hmm. as they are. With, and Estella does a great job of, I've heard her say this, and the difference between poverty and race and having those mm -hmm. conversations as well. So, yeah. No, I, I love that. I, I also love that you you brought in COVID and how that should not be separated from racism, right? And that is something that I think um, our, on our, our college campuses, we, we've been talking about COVID, you know, how has this impact your faculty life, your research, you know, your practice, but we've never really talked about it in the context of racism, right? 
And so I think that's one of the things or, um, you know, limitations is that race should always matter, right? In, in all we do. And um, yeah, so I appreciate you, you bringing that. And I also appreciate that the fact that these are tough conversations um, and for entire campuses to take on. Um, the, so the question that I have um, in, in relation to what we've been talking about, I know as someone that works, you know, Tia, you work with the Association for the American College Universities to improve student learning for underserved students. And I, I really love how you critique sort of like the diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, you know, as a vision that everyone can agree upon but nobody really understands how to live it. And I was wondering if you can could tell us how institutions should be using their equity, um, their diversity, equity, and inclusion statements to improve student learning outcomes inside and outside the classroom. Well, let's first just talk about how they're developed. Nine times okay. out of 10, they're developed by a committee Yes, <laughs> I mean, which, you know, is the downfall of all of us because everything's mm. worked in committee. Mm. So they're, they're developed by committee and then they're endorsed or reviewed by institutional leaders. But what often doesn't happen are those conversations with the people that are going to be implementing those particular, the goals of those statements and how they individually are going to be contributing to the more shared responsibility that, that's listed there. I mean, those the statements, and again, I believe in vision. They're more visionary than they are mission. Visionary statements about diversity, equity, inclusion, they're important. All students will be that. And I'm gonna let Estella deal with the concept of all because she has taught me about not saying that, but I'm gonna say this because that's what they are. They say all students should get it's, a, it's, a, it's an environment where everyone's welcome and we want everyone to succeed. But the issue with that is that when we start examining what the institution is doing, and this is why in the book, Lindsay, Estella, the things that I've learned from them and that we continue to talk about is that if you're not examining data and what's happening close to practice, then you're not gonna get to understanding where those opportunities are for improvement and where those barriers are. And I think that that is what's happening is that we have these grandiose diversity, equity and inclusion statements. And once they're out there, we don't have a systematic way to actually interrogate them, to examine them in a way where they are going to be data informed, where we're actually going to hold ourselves accountable, where there's going to be a shared responsibility across our institutions. And mm -hmm. I think every single person on our campus, we say in our book, Becoming a Student-Ready College, that everyone has a capacity to be an effective educator. Well, in order to be an effective educator, you've got to understand the goals, the values, how, what are your responsibilities, no matter what role you play on the campus, no matter what role you play in this virtual environment, you're contributing to those goals. And I think we don't spend enough time helping or designing in our performance appraisals and our job descriptions mm -hmm. and examining how our offices and areas function. I don't think we do enough to say, okay, what, how is this part of what I'm doing on a daily basis or on a regular basis contributing to this overarching goal? And where are my falling short, short? And who am I falling short with? And then how do I actually address it? We don't 
spend enough time, we automatically think, well, we put into it, put an intervention in place, then that's going to solve everything. Because of course, everyone's going to change, as we talked about earlier, their mindsets, their behaviors, and it's going to work. And it doesn't happen that way. So I'm actually um, less focused on the DEI statement when I go to an institution and more focused on what are they actually doing. Mm. Yeah, that was, that was, well, uh, you said it, you said it, it turns out like we, it's a pretty statement. It's a beautiful statement, but we don't have the systemic, a systemic way to have it touch sort of like our um, like teaching, right? In, in ways that I think could, could make an impact or our tenure evaluations, right? You know, um, so I think, you know, you said it, it's, it's, it's sort of, it sits sort of very siloed in, in many ways. But there are strategies though, but there are, I'm sorry, go ahead. But that's the thing is that they exist. Yes. We just don't use them. I was going to say that, you know, uh, those statements are not that different uh, from mission statements from colleges and universities. And um, I think it was probably my first graduate course at Teachers College or one of them where we read the book, uh, The Organized um, Anarchy. And one of the um, uh, one of the things that's brought up in that book primarily, you know, James March was that the reason why mission statements tend to be vague and to be about everything and not anything sometimes is because there isn't agreement, right? There isn't a consensus on what um, the university or the college stands for. So they necessarily become vague and about just about everything. And I think that's true also for the diversity equity uh, statements is the fear that people will feel left out. So, mm. so it includes everyone. Exactly. Oh, yes. So is that when you, so what is your, your uh, caveat to all students when we say all students? You know, uh, the caveat is that when we say all students, it is, um, it's privileging the white student because that becomes our reference point. You, mm. you, when you say all students, you're not going to think necessarily of black students or Latinx students. And, um, and I think also um, that saying all students then takes away the attention from what the real problem is, which you know, the real problem is racial inequity. And then the third thing I would say is that when you say all students, and that's where your focus is, it's not going to necessarily benefit racial equity. And um, I was just telling you earlier when we were speaking that I, I had been reading the book by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast. And one of the points I mean, among the many, many great points that she makes is that the civil rights movement actually helped everyone, particularly white women, by the way. Mm. And, um, and so when you focus on the racially minoritized populations and their conditions, you're much more likely to benefit all than when you 
when your focus starts out being all students. I hope that was clear. Yeah, no, that was really clear. Thank you for, for expanding on that for me. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to kind of touch back in terms of like teaching and learning a little bit and examining sort of pedagogy. And I think you mentioned something around um, how change needs to happen in all aspects, like in math. And so I know on my own campuses, you know, we're examining, you know, teaching and pedagogy as it relates to, you know, equity and inclusion, but mostly, you know, in, in STEM fields, you know. And so what do you say to those who believe that it's impossible to incorporate equity and justice in STEM fields that, you know, what fundamentally, you know, needs to shift to have those conversations? I'll start with you, Stella. So, well, I would say that uh, when people suggest that um, race doesn't have much to do with math or science, the first thing I would point them to is all of the travesties uh, that have been committed <laughs> under the name of science. Mm. So, you know, so you can't tell me that the Tuskegee experiment had nothing to do with, with race or the fact that birth control was uh, experimented with in, in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. So science uh, has a very long history of racism, not only in the United States, but also needless to say in Germany. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in fact, doctors here in the United States experimented with black women who were enslaved. And so, um, so it would be to ignore all of that. But, but the reason why race has something to do with, uh, with math and STEM is that um, you can see racialization in the classroom. So in the way in which the faculty member interacts with students, who that faculty member recognizes as, uh, as knowers in the classroom, who the instructor interacts with and how they interact. So I think, I guess what I'm trying to say, teaching and learning is much more than just content. It's, it's perhaps even more about the, the pedagogical practices and the extent to which that instructor is conscious that he or she is responsible for creating a classroom climate uh, that enables students to, uh, to learn. So the point is that you mentioned COVID earlier. Mm -hmm. So um, the reason why COVID has had worse uh, impact on Blacks and Latinx has to do with racism mm -hmm. because black, particularly blacks, suffer uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, and other high risk factors because of racism. Racism causes health problems, and we are seeing them now being mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the consequences through COVID. I would also say that racism prevents learning. And that if students do not find themselves in classrooms where they feel comfortable to make mistakes in particular, then learning cannot take place. So we should think about it, it just as we think about the health risks of racism, we should think about the learning risks 
of racism. And I think that those are most accentuated in STEM and in men because mm. of the very thought that those faculty members may think it has nothing to do with race or even with gender. Mm. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's powerful. And, and it made me think of, you know, one of my research findings and in, in working with foreign documented students is the majority of the microaggressions that occur happen in the classroom. And I remember mm -hmm. telling uh, having a student telling me that their engineering professor used a border wall as an example of, you know, steel and engineering. And so, um, so yes, it's, it's I had a faculty member in one of our projects, a math faculty member who used as a math example, who he thought would be relevant, what would the labor of an enslaved person oh. cost today? So how these, well, it was well-intentioned turns into these microaggressions, right? And racism or racist incidents that happen in these in these classes. And so, um, so yeah, I think, you know, you, we, I think Tia, you mentioned like there's strategies out there, right? There's mm -hmm. strategies out there that, you know, faculty could, could, you know, link to. And I think your book offers lots of great case studies. Talk a little bit about sort of like those specific strategies that perhaps we, we need to be using and applying in, in um, how we employ equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah, I think that there, and I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna not talk about the ones in the book and Sal can talk about that. I'm gonna talk about two that we have embraced at AECNU. So mm -hmm. the first one, I wanna make sure everybody, since we are talking about STEM, I wanna make that, those links between that. Our Kelly Mack's work on teaching to increase diversity, equity, and STEM, and her work with HHMI and the Inclusive Excellence, and, the, and that particular work, as David aside, just came and was our opening keynote for our STEM conference, and his focus was all about race and racism mm. within STEM, and so I think that if you have an interest in that, if you go to our website at aacu.org, you'll be able to see that, I, and I think, because we didn't write about this in the book, I think we just mentioned it one part, is our work on truth, racial healing, and transformation. So in the book, Estella identified those obstacles, those 10 obstacles that we had mm -hmm. and that and that we see, and we and Lindsay and I agreed with that we see regularly on campuses and in our work with them. But for us at ACNU, we made the decision to engage in the truth, racial healing, and transformation effort. And the reason why we did that was because of that focus on being honest about race and racism on our campus, having that truth telling, looking at our symbols, our interactions, our behaviors, even the way the media, our campus media as well, also portray race and how having the conversations, doing those structured interviews and looking at historical documents and really being honest about the narrative about race, on race at our institutions. And then that focus on racial healing. And we use the work of um, Gail Christopher, who's the visionary and architect of the TRHD effort when she was at the WK Kellogg Foundation was, and is part of our work, and, and she was focused on the mental and physical impact of racism on people when it's experienced and when they're, you know, and I think that that's something that, and that's why she called it RX racial healing circles, because there is that that physical 
and mental impact that that sometimes doesn't get acknowledged and that whole concept of what it means to be racial trauma informed leaders so that we can help our students and that's one of the things that I think we should challenge all educators particularly faculty and student affairs leaders on campus to be racial trauma informed leaders I mean and to be able to in, to understand what that means and to understand what happens when a student experiences trauma and how that manifests and how that actually influences their educational experiences. I don't think we do enough with that. So the TRHT effort is really much involved in helping to build that institutional capacity so that we can get to sustain transformation. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's called the truth, racial healing and transformation because it acknowledges that, but it also acknowledges what Estella was talking about with that hierarchy of human value that comes, I mean, in looking at it through our laws, through the way we've separated ourselves and through our economic policies and with, within that is public health and also mm. immigration and education and workforce preparation. We have this false belief in a hierarchy of human value that is so deeply embedded into all of our decision-making and our structures and the way that we design policies that we are now because of COVID having as an example having this negative impact on a group of people because of their race mm -hmm. and their ethnicity because of long held systemic structures that, that failed us and said that one life is more valuable than another based on skin color. So I think that there are different ways. And again, those are just um, two examples of things. Mm -hmm. And we talk again about obstacles in the book about not using racially coded language and, and looking at talking about the myth of universalism and, and really being able to look at behaviors as Estella was talking about. There's no simple answer. Mm -hmm. I want people to know that there's no simple answer. That there is the need for us to be committed to this work and not just put that burden on a few educators. And that's why I'm actually that series that I've been talking about this too, that Inside Higher Ed is doing about the what's happening with Blacks in higher education and happening with other leaders from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. I hope that it's not there just to say, oh, what was, you know, look at this, but like, no, you know what? This is not just a responsibility of a few, it's a responsibility of many. Mm. And I don't know whether or not that's getting through because we have all those statements and I really think we need to start talking about what happens beyond the statements. Yeah. I, would, um, I think that sometimes, you know, it's in their routine practices. So I was reading a job announcement today from a national organization looking for someone to lead um, a, a major initiative that's related to the reform of developmental education. Now, Developmental education was a racist practice mm -hmm. and because it disproportionately impacted um, racially minoritized students. And uh, so whoever is going to reform developmental education probably needs to understand that racial history of how developmental education came about. But there was nothing in the job announcement that addressed that issue. It, it, and I was just like, this is what happens. It happens in the, the cumulative effect of little, 
you know, things like that is what continues to maintain a system that is racist and that um, in fact prevents reform. So, you know, you, you know, Tia mentioned universalism. So that job announcement is written in what one might call universalist language and totally misses what the, um, what the problem is. Mm. Oh, and with yeah. your tools, and with your tools, Estella, which are now available, we just hope people use them in the right way. So we're going to put a plug in for those too, because I always do your Center for Urban Education Racial Equity Tools. You can actually look at yes. those those artifacts and go deeper in those conversations, but you've got to be willing to do the work. Yeah, I mean, you've been talking about that. You've been showing examples mm -hmm. of not only syllabi. The job descriptions and having these conversations and working with it, you you've got to be honest about it. That's an that's an artifact that that actually exhibits the narrative about race. Yeah, that particular association. I think that if most if colleges and universities as well as their intermediary organizations did a study of their language, they would find that it is predominantly race neutral. Um, and or or is kind of falls into the diversity you know category, but you will rarely ever see terms like racial equity, you or or or, or whiteness, or um, social justice or justice. I mean, like the language is very muted. Mm. Which we know, you know, race neutrality is a reproduction of whiteness. You know, right. That's, so, mm -hmm. in in essence, we're just reproducing whiteness in many of our beautiful statements. I think one of the things that you all mentioned that I wanted to kind of back, turn back to was this notion of commitment. And Tia, you talked about this the racial the the truth and racial um, healing, sort of using racial trauma informed leadership models. Um, I real that resonated with me in terms of the the physicality. Um, how we embody um, the work in ways that impacts health and, and mental wellness. And, and so what does commitment from an institution look like that doesn't weigh heavily on the labor of minoritized people on our campuses? Um, yeah. Yeah, so we've been working and, and having conversations with the group called the Steve Fund, and they really focus specifically on the mental well-being of students who are Black, Latinx, Indigenous. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they are, no apologies, they are focusing on students that are minoritized students across the board. So let's just say, let's just say, this. so it's called the Steve Fund. And I think that we need to build and think about not just how faculty of color and from you know both backgrounds are dealing with this, but how do you build the institutional knowledge and the the I don't want to say bandwidth, but the the capacity. I mean, the capacity to actually understand trauma and understand racism and understand, you don't have to be someone who experiences it to understand it. I, I really don't think that that's, I think that there are people that have high levels of empathy to 
to that can that can make relation to it. And I think we can have, and I don't want to diminish people who experience racism either, because we all know, I mean, I myself have, I, mean, I imagine that you two have as well. I, I think that it's not, it cannot be the burden and the responsibility of people of color on campus to be the only ones who have that commitment and that ability to engage with students when they experience racism or with their colleagues when they experience racism. And I think that we are not focusing on our roles as our common humanity. We focus, we don't focus on that to actually deal with um, and address racism on our campus. And that's why one of the reasons, again, why we embrace TRHT because the focus is on our interconnectedness as human beings and our ability to engage with each other and have that deep listening and that empathy. You don't have to experience the same thing, and in our experience, your experiences are not going to be the same in my, as mine as a white person. But can you have empathy and caring and knowledge to 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 understand how racism manifests itself and how racism shows up on our campuses and what that means for my experience and others who look like me? Yeah, I think that that's possible, and I think we do. We we just box people in in so many different ways. But we also have to be authentic and we have to, and, and we quickly can recognize who's being authentic about it and who's not. So, yeah, that's, I love, I love that. I think it's very powerful. You don't have to experience it to be someone that works, you know, for and for against racial inequities on our campus. I think that's one of the things that I, um, you know, it resonates with me because I, I, I see who is doing the work on our campuses, right? And I think that's, you know, on a predominantly white institution, it's always, you know, the the same folks. And I, you know, having tenure, I feel like now I'm getting tapped a lot to do, you know, some of the some of this, you know, work. And so I I I feel it. But I also think, you know, um, there there needs to be more of that capacity building that you mentioned in that knowledge building. Um, and I, and Sela, did you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I, well, yes. Um, I guess what I was going to say is that there is a power issue mm. and that um, speaking to what Tia mentioned that, you know, this is a, uh, we have a, we share a, a common humanity. We need to think in terms of we rather than I. I, you know, in the last few years in this country, um, politically, we have moved away from that. Uh, we see it in the lack of bipartisanship. Um, and um, we see it um, in the movement. Um, I mean, I suppose I can talk about politics and Trumpism, which is really anti-commonality. Uh, it has been extremely divisive and it has been done at, uh, by demonizing uh, people who are, are not white, uh, you know, describing Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals. So our country has, um, we, we have taken a step backwards and away from what, you know, Tia has just mentioned. And it's, uh, <clears throat> and it is about power, I think, 
because there is this threat that in 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 20 years we're going to be a country that's no longer majority white so that seems to be very threatening mm -hmm. yeah no thank you for bringing that up i think it's you know and i the you know, the work that I do kind of centers are a little bit around, you know, the Trumpism and the Trump effect, you know, with undocumented people and immigrants. And, and, and so I I also wanted to say that this, this didn't start with Trump either, right? And so it, it's absolutely part of, you know, you know what, what America is, has been about. And so I think, you know, um, you know, what we we're grappling with this notion of systemic racism across our country and as a nation you know, what, what advice or what do you, you know, we have a, you know, president-elect um, Biden coming in with this issue that was a platform, you know, during the campaign season around systemic racism, particularly around in our criminal justice system. But in, in looking at higher education, you know, um, you know, what are, what are your thoughts around how does one begin to tackle this and, and do this work? And nationally, <laughs> is that even possible? Stella or Tia, either one of you can chime in. I'm gonna let Estella go first. <laughs> <laughs> I went first the past couple of times. I'm gonna let her go first. <laughs> you know, um, I don't always think in, in big ways. Mm. Um, and so um, I'm not sure that I can answer the question about nationally, other than to say that we need people who are not afraid to take a stand against, uh, to, to, to take a stand where they speak clearly about this issues, not skirt around it or fall into the trap of euphemisms to talk about race, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that we need people who are not afraid to say, uh, as you know, Ibram Candy says, to say this policy could have racist outcomes and this policy will have anti-racist outcomes. To be able to speak that mm -hmm. directly and to be able to accept that racism as critical race theorists have pointed out is endemic in this country and it was built into this country so that in order to dismantle it, we have to be direct. And um, so that's one of the things that I would say. And I would say the same thing at the campus level. So a lot of times I am warned that my wanting to be explicit about racial equity and to actually name the groups. I want us to say Black, Latinx, you know, Indigenous, uh, Pacific Islanders. I am often told that I that you cannot do that with policymakers because that's too divisive and hmm. will alienate them. And and so I say, as long as we continue to compromise in that, then we can never speak clearly. And I that's what we we need. And um, and people with power don't have anything to be afraid of. It shouldn't be you, Susana, and it should not be me necessarily either, or Tia. I mean, we do have, to, uh, obviously we do have power. You have the power of tenure, so do mm -hmm. I. And, and, and Tia has the power of a national platform. But 
Um, but it's people, you know, it's college presidents, it's foundation uh, directors or, you know, presidents who need to say, you're not going to get any more of our money, for instance, unless you do this. Mm. And, and, and so, and do we have that? We cannot, is, people think that they're good people. That, that's part of the problem. They, and because they think that they're good, they think they can make, they cannot do any harm. And that's how they're doing the greatest harm. Mm. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why Congresswoman Lee, that's why Representative Lee and Senator Booker want the TRHT commission so that it's not hidden anymore. And that's not, that you're actually upfront in a public way in Congress talking about racism and the impact of race for the various across for people of color and naming black and Latinx and indigenous and Pacific Islanders and saying, this is what's happening and hearing the testimony mm -hmm. in a public fashion of what, what has happened to so many different communities. And I think it's, it's I, I'm hoping that that legislation, I'm hoping that that resolution, I mean, just across the board that that is embraced and their support from the from this administration to actually move forward with that. Mm. Can you say a little bit about that resolution so our audience can can You can just Google those? it. It's that so if you Google Barbara Lee, Representative mm -hmm. Barbara Lee from California, okay. and then Senator Cory Booker, they both, and, and Senator Booker just introduced it in the Senate this past week. And then Senator and Representative Congresswoman Lee did this um, in June. She mm -hmm. introduced it, and obviously thinking about the racial injustices and the murders that were happening here, saying yeah. that we need this and it needs to be public. It needs to say it. So if you look, just Google it, you can okay. find the information about it. And, we'll and it's the it. TRHT Commission. Mm -hmm. And we'll definitely post it, post it on the podcast. And and so. I appreciate this conversation. I don't know who I need to lobby to get Estela Ben Simone as the Department of Secretary, our Secretary of Education. Who do I need to lobby? Because I think that's the voice that I think is going to substantially change education systemically. So, um, the last question that I have for you is, um, you know, we the student this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. Um, quickly, what are you pondering or questioning or troubling now? You mean us individually? Yes. Yeah, individually? Yes. individually. Like, what are you, like, what's keeping you up at night, you know, in terms of um, our field? Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, I would say for me, the, the, you know, the events of the last few months in, in terms of the, you know, the, the murders mm -hmm. uh, of um, Black people, uh, uh, also Latina male here in, in the Los Angeles area. I mean, that to me is, is horrifying. And then the, uh, the, the, and, you know, I, I mentioned that I just finished reading this book, um, The Cast, which has left a very strong impression on me. Um, and one is of um, anger 
uh, a horrifying history that she uh, provides, not only past, but also current, um, that Isabel Wilkerson provides. And, and, you know, and why is it that, why is it that it's so ignored uh, here? And why are we so ahistorical? Why is it that people feel so comfortable in saying, well, that's in the past. You know, I had nothing to do with that. Well, we all in fact had something to do with it. And so that's what, um, that's what concerns me. And, but I'm also gratified that the Black Lives Movement has become energized and, um, and that there are some things maybe that we can do now that we couldn't do before uh, Mr. Uh, uh, George Floyd was murdered and, um, and you know, and, and, and the others as well. Thank you for that. What about you, Thea? Um, what keeps me up at night <laughs> is what's going to happen to my son mm. and my stepson every time he walks out yeah. the door and then my friends and their sons and I'm in an organization with a group of mothers and we spend a lot of time focusing on our children. And I am hoping that what we're doing is going to make some type of impact and difference so that their lives are better, uh, which is what many people want is for the next generation, their lives to be better. Um, but I can tell you that it is um, a deep pit of agonizing um, as my son gets older and goes into his teenage years and worrying about when he put a hoodie on and walked around our neighborhood, what was gonna happen to him. Mm. That keeps me up at night. Mm. Thank you, I felt that. Thank you so much um, for that. Um, and. And thank you just for all the contributions that you've made this um, in, during this podcast. I'm grateful for the time that you've taken to, to be our guest today on Student Affairs Now. Um, thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Anthology, formerly Campus Labs. Visit them at campuslabs.com slash essay-now. You can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and invite others to subscribe, share on social media, or leave a five-star review. It really helps our conversations like um, this reach more people and build a community so we can make this free to you. Again, my name is Susana Munoz. Thanks again for our fabulous guests for sharing their knowledge and their experiences today and to everyone who is watching and listening. Be kind to yourselves and make it a great week. Mm -hmm.